and that is like my goal in life is to be pleasantly mm -hmm. demented just happy go lucky being able to like you know just enjoy my life regardless of if i have any idea what the hell is going on around me <laughs> This episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. So Tyler, we've both done this thing called clinical ethics where we worked, we have worked in hospitals and we've taken ethics consults, we get a call to respond to an ethics issue. What kinds of interesting cases or situations have you found yourself in as a clinical ethicist? You know, it's always surprising what questions get posed and kind of what direction all of these consultations take, right? So one of the most memorable ones that I can, that, that comes to mind is oftentimes when we get asked to be involved in cases, there are questions about whether the patient should be making their own decisions or whether somebody else should be making decisions for a patient who is incapable of making their own decisions, right? There's a process by which clinicians ought to go through the evaluation of whether somebody has the ability to make decisions or not for themselves. Um, so a capacity assessment is the term that we use. And part of the capacity assessment is also having the patient repeat back to you like what their name is, where the, where they are, you know, what day it is, who the president of the United States is, is kind of an orientation process, you know, to indicate where, where they are mentally. And one of the funniest things that happened to me and, and from a philo philosophical background, this was brilliant. Um, so I was involved in the capacity assessment of a patient and they were asking the, the patient his name and he was able to recite it and they asked him what day it was. And he, a little bit foggy, but he'd also been, you know, in a coma for a week or two. So it was within, within the margin of error. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> right. And so, but they asked him where he was. And this man you could tell was, was intellectually savvy and, and knew kind of what they were going for, what they were asking. And he turned and looked at the, the doctor asking the question. He said, I'm here which I thought was perfect. Right. Yeah, and so from right. kind of like a, a met, yeah, from like a metaphysical perspective or like, you know, like the ontology of all of this, like it was so entertaining and the doctor had no idea what to do with that information. So um, every time I see the doctor, I, I, I ask him, so doc, where are you? And he always says, oh, <laughs> that's a good one. I once had a patient who um, was convinced that she was at the beach she had some pretty serious dementia, but the um, air conditioning in her room was really loud. And uh -huh. she would sit at the window and she said, come here, can you hear the ocean? I'm at the beach, <laughs> I love the beach. And it was like, man, if I ever have dementia, I wanna have dementia like that. She was so Absolutely. peaceful. Yeah, so I'm thinking of a, um, a case I had a few years back. I'm sure you've experienced this too. And sometimes you get a call and what you thought was gonna be the ethics issue or what somebody said is the ethics issue ends up really not being the ethics issue, but it might end up being something else. And we had a patient who, um, whose daughter was making some choices for her that were a little strange and they called an ethics consult. And the first thing I did was looked at this woman's advanced directive. Um, she actually had one 
and she had um, five wishes, which is actually my favorite form of advanced directive because it gets into sort of your life history and what you like and what you might want. I think it's just a really good form. Um, but in the form, she had written in by hand, don't ever pray for me. Don't ever sing me songs, especially Christian ones. Don't ever read the Bible to me. And this was like, she had made this firm declaration that these were things that she absolutely did not want. And it's things that people were doing. <laughs> so we then had to go, gosh, this is her values say something really clear. She absolutely could not have sort of perceived maybe what, what that people were doing these things for her. Uh -huh. But it was like, well, do we tell them to stop? Do we force them to stop? Oh, gosh, what do we do in that moment? It was just yeah. one of those, like, I hadn't really experienced that before. Yeah, that's funny. It's fu it's interesting to see what people put into their advanced directives. And sometimes, um, you know, in a, in a different episode, we talked about what advanced directives are and kind of what the goal is. Um, but sometimes we have to, we see things that are really funny and really interesting. And so there was a time where I was looking through an advanced directive where somebody was talking about kind of what they value in life or how we could know when their life was no longer worth living. And usually it's things like, you know, if I'm not able to, not able to feed myself or I'm not able to do my daily needs or, you know, if I have to be helped while I'm, you know, going to the toilet or something like that. So it's usually kind of really kind of nuts and bolts, visceral things. But there was one um, advanced directive that I saw where it said, if I can no longer read and understand Chaucer, my life is not worth living. <laughs> oh, good Lord, most of our lives aren't worth living then. <laughs> Nobody's life is worth living because nobody understands what the hell Chaucer was saying. So we're pleased today to welcome Virginia Bartlett. Virginia is an assistant director for the Center for Healthcare Ethics at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. She's also an assistant professor of biomedical sciences. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you, Devin. It's great to be here. Thank you, Tyler. I'm pleased to be able to talk with you all today. Great. So Virginia, we always start off by the, asking the same question. Do you consider yourself a bioethicist? <laughs> I, I understand why you might ask that. That's kind of a loaded question. Um, I don't actually. Uh, I I make a joke with my with the trainees and the physicians at the hospital that um, I have friends and colleagues who do bioethics, and many of them work in universities, and they get summers and winters off, and they get to work on big ideas. Um, I do clinical ethics, which is very much at bedside, in the context, uh, whether it's in a hospital or in a research setting that people are facing moral challenges. So I, I think of myself as a clinical ethicist more than a bioethicist. Interesting. So you'll be the first sort of clinical ethicist that we've talked to. So tell us how you got into doing clinical ethics. Sure. Accidentally is the way that uh, and happenstance <laughs> is a big part of it. I come from a family of physicians, healthcare professionals, teachers, uh, we have a minister and a couple lawyers thrown in there. So the kinds of questions and topics that people think about in terms of, of clinical ethics in particular are ones that I grew up with. And I studied English and religion as an undergrad and really had that, what do you do with this kind of moment and realized that this was field. This was a, an area of, of research, of practice. Um, I had come to it more as a medical ethics, bioethics kind of frame thinking about big questions and policy and um, that kind of 
philosophical thinking around how do you how do you address questions about what's the right way to take care of people. So I started my graduate training with the idea of getting a degree in religion and a degree in law, because those were the two frames that you think about with ethics, at least if you're a 21 year old. By the time I actually got into my graduate training, I realized I really didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, that uh, no offense intended to, to lawyers. It's, it's, fair. it's That's fair. Right. It is fair. Um, and I actually had a great, I had a great uh, teacher in my graduate program um, who was a lawyer and who had a PhD in church history. And she, after talking to me and listening to me, realized you don't want to do that kind of ethics work because you'll wind up doing policy work. When I hear you talk about ethics or medical ethics, you're talking about taking care of people. You, you need to get a PhD. You need to actually go do this work in a hospital setting, which was really devastating for somebody who thought that she was almost done with her um, master's degree. And, and was <laughs> so, Especially with all of the uh, imposter syndrome that so many of us have of the, well, I'm not smart enough to do that. I can't do that. But I had great teachers and mentors who actually encouraged and supported me into um, staying at Vanderbilt for a PhD program. And in particular, my mentors, uh, Mark Blyton and Stuart Fender, their focus was very much on clinical ethics. It was, yes, you need to know the legal frameworks. Yes, you need to know the kind of big ideas that led to this. But when it comes down to it, it's actually about how patients and their families and their healthcare providers navigate disruption, uncertainty, what it means to be living, what it means to be dying. And that actually requires uh, a different framework than the, than the big picture thinking. Got so into it, it accidentally. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us do get into it accidentally. It seems like you're drawing a dis making a distinction between bioethics and clinical ethics. Can you ex explain that a little bit? What What do you mean when you say clinical ethics? When I when I mean clinical ethics, I mean actually ethical and moral challenges and concerns that come out of a clinical setting and that take place in a clinical setting. Bioethics, I think of, uh, and that's this is not a disparagement. It's just I think of them as very different kind of areas. I think of bioethics as more of the big picture, big tent. It can encompass everything from ecological ethics to policy work to, um, to again, the kind of philosophical underpinnings of what the good life looks like or what the um, what physician obligations or responsibilities might be. In terms of clinical ethics, I think all of those are relevant, but it really comes down to an, to creating a space, creating a moral space for for that to actually play out in the direct interactions. So every clinical setting is different. A doctor's office is different than a hospital setting is different than a nursing home setting. An ICU floor has different concerns, structures, patterns, um, habits of communication than a rehab center does. And so if you're doing clinical ethics work, part of the requirement is actually focusing on paying attention to and responding to what is presented to you in those moments. And so it's not that every end of life consult or question would have a similar answer necessarily. It's that you actually have to figure out what those concerns mean to the people who are involved, the physicians, the nurses, the family, the patient themselves. So I think of the clinical ethics as the more direct and interpersonal navigation and, and creating, again, creating the space, the kind of architecture of how do you get people to a place of being able to figure out what matters most of them 
at the times when it really matters. Uh, so Tyler and I have done some of this work as well, um, mm -hmm. but I wonder, and, and I think you're exactly right, a lot of the things that we deal with are about communication issues and people not feeling like they're being heard. Um, and, and a lot of times you can resolve the ethical dilemma by just getting the parties in the same room and moderating a discussion between them. That just seems so common. I wonder if you have a story, and of course, you know, there's all sorts of confidentiality, but what kinds right. of things surprise you in your work or that you, you've heard of or that you've participated in where you went, wow, well, that's a new one. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, that is, uh, wow. And it's interesting because in some ways they're all new. Um, and that's one of the things that I find really fascinating and rewarding about this work is that even if it's like, oh, this is a call from the ICU, it's a question about code status, um, which is the the kind of CPR orders and whether or not somebody's going to have uh, CPR attempted if they're in a in a dying process or, you know, a withholding a, a, of interventions because the physicians think it's not in a, indicated anymore, but the family feels differently or feels that it would be appropriate. Those are, those are kind of typical consults that we get. And yet every single one of them has a different, a different flavor to it and a different kind of, um, different kind of weight. So ones that have struck me and stayed with me are ones that have pushed me as an ethics consultant and as a person, as a human to kind of think differently. Um, and I've, I've, written and talked about some of these in more public ways before just the there was a patient that that was a uh, an attempted suicide and she did not this patient did not die immediately and the family was continuing to to hope and to pray for recovery despite all medical evidence and indication that that was not going to happen and it became a a flashpoint between the what appeared to be a flashpoint around religion versus science as a kind of conflict with the medical team saying, no, the science says, no, we can't do this. This is wrong to even do more studies because we know what's going to happen and it's not going to help. It's not going to change things. And the family saying, we just need to see it. We just need to know. And in the end, it actually wound up being less of a science and religion thing and more of a, how do you actually help people in crisis? And how do you, as a care provider, respond to somebody else's crisis, their fear, their grief, their their panic, and do so when it's actually throwing you into a similar kind of fear and grief and panic and uncertainty. Am I really sure? What if I'm wrong? How do I still make a medical decision for and on behalf of this patient when the stakes are so incredibly high? So that's one kind of um, thing. There's, there's funny ones and there's ones that, um, uh, one of my most striking ones that I remember too was just again in the terms of language and communication and, and how do you how do you respond to what's in front of you? We had a patient who was dying. The wife had been struggling with this for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it was finally at a kind of irrevocable point. And we had a conversation with the ICU doctors and with the palliative care team, and with this wife. And you know the physicians had said we don't have anything else to offer except for caring for him while he's dying, and we're going to make sure that that's comfortable. And you could see the moment when the wife understood and she had that moment of of grief that just came onto her face and kind of of, of awareness and, and almost of acceptance. And there was a silence that stretched out and it was uncomfortable 
right? Because you're watching somebody having the recognition of having fought for so long to care for their loved one that they were dying anyway. And one of the ICU doctors who was trying, I think, to be compassionate and helpful um, turned to, you know, said, you know, yeah, this is really hard. And, you know, are you okay? And it turns out that that's really not the right question to ask at that moment. And yeah. Yeah. she erupted like a volcano. And I, um, and she educated him in no uncertain terms about how she was not okay and that that was not fair to ask of her. And she, he needed to never speak to her again. And I kind of felt some sympathy for her along the way. I was thinking yeah. the same thing. Um, so yeah. it's, it is really at root what I love about this work is that even in moments of significant conflict and um, the difficulty of so much uncertainty, even when people are head to head thinking that the other person is acting wrongly or doesn't understand or isn't getting it, what's really at core of all of this is that these are people trying to take care of other people. Mm -hmm. um, it is families trying to care for their loved ones. It is patients trying to care for their families from their sick bed, trying to actually give forth love and support and and acceptance at times to people mm -hmm. who who are going to be left behind and it's yeah. clinicians trying to figure out how to take care of these these strangers that come into their lives and that's that's actually a phenomenal place to start in a mm -hmm. in the world where there's actually so much um so much of other kinds of feelings especially at the moment yeah so so i've done clinical ethics quite a bit and mm -hmm. as you know I completely agree with you that every time that pager goes off, every time the phone rings, I kind of think I know what's going to, the case mm -hmm. is going to be, what the consult's yep. going to be, but I'm never right. Nope. It's always something different. Yeah. And yeah. it always surprises me how challenging and unique each case is. And part of our job, our role, I would say, as a clinical ethicist is to step into somebody else's shoes at the worst moment of their lives. And, and sometimes it's in the worst moment of this family's life mm -hmm. and to try to offer some sort of advice or recommendations or some sort of, you know, words of wisdom about how to deal with this. But I, I agree. There are times when, when the things being asked of me are so beyond what I could have imagined. I, I got a consult once from a dietitian, mm -hmm. which is unusual, yeah. not unheard of, but dietitians generally are not the, the primary source of consultations for clinical ethicists. And the question was, or, you know, they didn't frame it in this way, but what is my obligation to honor this patient's commitment to being a vegan? Mm -hmm. And so the question was about yeah. whether we were violating some sort of inherent right or dignity that this patient had because they were a, a lifelong vegan. vegan. All of the um, nutritional supplements, yeah, all the nutritional supplements that we had were not vegan. And so where do we rank that in terms, I mean, do we have to go out and spend enormous resources to buy a, a new supplier that would actually supply vegan, you know, artificial nutrition and hydration? And, and it was totally taken aback. I was like, right. I, this is, I haven't even thought about this before, right? Is, yeah. Are there vegan uh, formulas available? What do we do? How do yeah. we no, it is. It's, um, and, and again, I think that actually, that really is to the core of, again, what I think about in terms of clinical ethics is it really is trying to figure out and help people think through what is it that actually is important for me being in the world. And, and if I can't continue in the ways that I have, is that still meaningful for me? Or if I have to adjust um, how I 
how I meet my sense of self, my community, my family. For the physicians, it's and the and the nurses. How do I how do I provide care for this person if what they're asking for actually goes against what I hold most dear? Can I do that? How do I do that? Um, so Devin, you talked about the idea of right, like getting people together in in a room um, when there is that kind of when people talk past each other and to get the space where they can say, oh, maybe I maybe I actually do know what you're saying, or maybe I can hear you differently. And we, we aren't as far apart as we think we are. I also find that a lot of my consultations um, come from don't don't ever get to the place of having a kind of formal family meeting that people might think about. A lot of them are actually helping people in one on one or in small, you know, team cohorts to think about what is our responsibility, how to strategize a title or as you said, to kind of help people, um, give people advice on whether it's, whether it's language or whether it's how to frame things so that they can, again, meet their responsibilities. On a clinician side, that's very much around how do you take care of the person in front of you in a way that is fully about them, but that also realizes that they are in and part of family systems, community systems, you are part of a healthcare system, and that you have to go to the next one, right? And that you actually have to be able to pivot um and to take care of yourself enough to keep going to the next one yeah that's especially hard in the pandemic right now i think and that's i think uh going to become one of our ongoing challenges in the future um people are people are giving their all and will be doing so for the foreseeable future yeah an issue that comes up more frequently for healthcare providers is this idea of moral distress, of burnout and compassion fatigue and, and people just being taxed. And we're going to talk about that in a different episode, I think. Um, yeah. But my question to you is, as a clinical ethicist, how do you combat that for yourself? So we, I tell people yeah. that we, um, if you go through every single unit in the hospital and ask them mm -hmm. what their most difficult case is yeah. and list those all, all out, that's my patient list. Every single person, it's usually the healthcare providers, it's usually like their one or two or, you know, top five difficult cases in their career. And, right. and that's what we have to deal with on a day in and day, day out basis. So as yep. a clinical ethicist, how do you deal with that? That's a great question. And, and I'm with you. I, I opened my um, electronic medical record today and, or my charts today and looked at it and went, oh, yeah, no, those are just and, and, and people, I think, at least in my institution, you guys can can say if it's the same where you are we are often we're often the last stop because people clinicians of all kinds do have tremendous resources from their own training from their disciplines from their experience for navigating this kind of stuff so by the time we get called on something most of the time it's because everybody has tried everything else or people have just really reached an end of their rope for me it's a couple different things one is again the orientation and the attitude um, and the people are struggling with this because they give a damn. Sorry if you have to edit that out, but it's because they actually <laughs> No, we can we can say damn. <laughs> you know, but it is. It's true. It's it's that people and so being able to approach um even the most uh curmudgeonly of clinicians or the most distressed and reactive of family members with a frame of they're like this because they care. And that's a that to me helps to to start with and to wrap up with a frame of charitable read as as I learned in divinity school you got to give the charitable read to, to the argument or to the position i have tremendous peer and mentor support and again my my kind of tradition and my my training is very much with with the frame of 
clinical ethics is about the clinical and moral experiences that people have and that when we get involved in those, we have those as well. They may be different, but they are relevant to how I understand and think about a consult. It's not that I suddenly become a deeply neutral intellectual kind of automaton when I put on my clinical ethics hat. I'm still a, a human who comes in with frames and experiences that help me actually engage with others. So there's a sense of in doing the work that I am, uh, my, my teacher's teacher, one of my kind of um, major influences in my work is uh, Richard Zayner, who started the program at Vanderbilt back in the 80s. And it's that idea of affiliation, of walking with and being with people. So even if there's not a cure for the moral distress, the recognition that you are not alone in it, that you are seen and recognized and that that people are going with you until until something changes and until there's room to maneuver. And that's actually a really, that's again, part of the clinical part with, as you, I mean, you all know this too, right? With clinical ethics, you can have the most clear and calm and compassionate and wonderful conversation with all of the key players at 10 AM and have a plan. And by 2 PM, it's clinical. So there's either been a shift change or the patient had some clinical thing happen to their body and all bets are off. And so for me, the clinical ethics is about the responsibility and being responsive to what that is. So part of it's being able to have people to talk with about it. And that's both my practice partners, my, my peers, uh, Stuart and Andy, but also the social workers who come at it from a different perspective or the chaplains or talking through with friends at other institutions to be like, wait, what? This just happened. And I just need a reality check of, did this really just happen? So that's, it's, it's a lot of trying to to hold on to the positives in these circumstances and and the hope that in making that space for people to talk, that they actually have a chance to get clear and go forward together. May not agree, may not be happy. It's, I keep telling the residents, you, you can't, asking what people want or asking if people will be happy with this is the wrong frame for this, 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 this world. It's really the, is this acceptable? Is this meaningful? Is this livable? Can we continue to care for each other in this? And and more often than not, we can. And that's actually um, part of what lets me keep going back. There are also days where I go hide in the stairwell in the critical care tower and sob my eyes out. So let's be real clear about that. And there are right. days that I come home and have no idea if I helped and really hope that I didn't actually make it worse. That's part of the gig, actually. So I think that's one of the things that matters then. I think that's actually with with clinical ethics training and for those who are interested in this as a field is it's, this is maybe Devin where some of my religion kind of background comes in is I don't think of this as a job. If you're going into this looking for a job, then you also I think are starting in the wrong frame. This is really a be committed to this kind of disruption, this kind of uncertainty, the recognition that, that even if you've figured it out for 900 patients before, you actually still have to come at it with the same kind of curiosity and humility, aim for discovery, and trepidation of, God, I hope I don't screw this up every time. And if you don't, then you actually are at real risk of hurting yourself and other people. So I, I think it's, um, my teacher joked, and one of the, um, one of the, the kind of themes and frames through my book that I'm working on is the idea of, if you can do anything else, you probably should. But by the time you realize it, it's probably too late. If you're actually in this enough to where you're, 
you're considering doing it, it's because you're compelled and drawn to it for reasons that you actually have to be able to articulate what it is that brought you into this. And it can't just be, eh, it seemed like a cool question and like a good job. That won't get you through and that won't actually help people. It's a calling in some ways. Well, thanks, Virginia. That was, I mean, I think so helpful for everybody who's thinking about it. Hopefully we didn't scare away all potential students who want to get into this work. It's also incredibly rewarding work. It is tough work too. So people really have to be invested. And I'm thankful for all the patients and medical team that get to work with you where you are, because it seems like you really do care. I get to learn every day how to be a human and how to take care of people. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, thanks for talking with us, Virginia. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I started giggling and then I got in trouble because I was the, <laughs> the, the junior person in the room, but... I don't know. Some sometimes people just crack me up and I start giggling. I mean, you got to if you don't laugh.